0: Hi, welcome to the ninth episode of Hotels 101, a podcast that dives into the lives of those who live and breathe hotels and lodging and leisure every day. I'm your host, Rob Hayes, the president and CEO of Ashford Hospitality Trust, a hotel company based here in Dallas that owns hotel assets all across the United States. And uh, thanks for joining us. And I am uh, incredibly excited about today's episode. So, Uh, My guest today is a absolute icon, and he will be very bashful and shy and disavow that title, (laughs) but it is the case of Fred Kleisner, who I'm very fortunate to be able to call a friend of mine, and uh, who has been with me through a lot of trenches over the past few years. And Fred is somebody who, Fred, I think I've walked into probably a dozen hotels with you, Uh, different hotels all around the country some that we own, different conferences. And I think at 100% of those hotels, (laughs) when I walk in with you, somebody walks up to you that either knows you or worked for you in this industry. True or not true?
1: This is true. And it it causes me to, to draw on deep memory to when someone gives me the honor of saying, I remember you, I push myself to say, okay, who is this? I need to remember them uh these are the people who made me look good for so many years so so fred here is
0: someone who's been in this industry for quite some time we're not going to say how many decades but quite a few decades and uh has been everything from ceos of large publicly traded companies from uh, ceo brands that people are are familiar with to general managers of literally dozens of hotels all across the u.s uh and so uh I, uh, again, I'm, I'm super excited because one of the things that I've always enjoyed is the times we've had dinners together or had opportunities to spend time together is I inevitably always hear a story or two that uh, I always find incredibly interesting. And so one of the things that when we started this podcast, uh, as I told people that helped me set this up, I I've got to have Fred on the show because Fred has got the stories that people will be interested in hearing. So again, I appreciate you taking the time to, to, to do this.
1: It's, the pleasure is
0: mine. All right. All right so give, give me some of the give me some of the background story. Who Who is Fred Kleisner? How did you get where you were?
1: Well, as Rob, as I sit here today uh, and you know, open the Wall Street Journal this morning and see hotels being the subject and uh, but the point of the article being, uh, brands are being manufactured uh, off an of assembly line that uh, we have Marriott with 32 brands and Hilton with 20 brands, Accor with 40 brands. And then beg the question in the article, are these for customers or guests or is this for owners of hotels to think about adding to their own stable? Uh, The state of play where we are today, we're waiting for that big R word to, for the hammer to fall if it does and when and how. Yet I reflect on not so much how many decades have I been in the hotel business, but rather I've been around through six full economic cycles. Uh, I think if I learned anything is that uh, a young man who was a very bright Baker scholar, Harvard grad at Starwood Hotels and Resorts, walked into my office in 1998, and said to me, "This is in the middle of the dot-com boom," and said, "You don't have to worry about uh, about all these contingency plans you like to put together for when things drop, uh, the economy drops, because the cyclical economy is over." Over and over, <laughs> I looked at him. I said, "Really? That? How did you figure that out?" And he said, "Well." look at how all these all these dot com IPOs are just going gangbusters. And when he had a number of somewhat salient points, all just empirical points that said he read the Wall Street Journal and probably read the Financial Times now and then. Uh, But I left him with the thought that, well, I would advise you not to share that too far because (laughs) I don't intend to change the way I approach things. I intend to manage for when things start to go soft, when the party's over in a up economy. And I look back at you know, We had a great run from 92 to 2000. Interestingly, everyone talks about 9-11-01. Yet we were in a recession uh, the, the week after Super Bowl Sunday in February of 01. Mm-hmm. I could see it in the reservation flow through our our general reservation systems. Uh, The same thing after a good run. uh, uh, Up to. uh, 2008 Uh, we had another strong economy and. As opposed to focusing on the anomalies that caused these things. Yes, we were hit by 9 11 01. Critically uh, and recovered. Uh, yet the signs were there uh, before each step as we approach the downside. Uh, hotels are a bellwether for that trend. And in in 07, before the 08 crash, uh, you know. Those who read took notice of the fact that long-term credit went under. The ruble and the bot had caused a currency crisis. The credit markets froze up. We didn't quite have a recession, but anyone who had maturities over that period were in deep trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yet it was more of a conversation with one of my sons that that started my antennas tweaking that "Hmm, things are going to get bad. My son called me and said, I'm looking for a, a new home in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I think I found the right spot. And a mortgage agent just offered me the chance to buy a place that is well beyond my budget, yet uh, he's offering me, me a mortgage that is, is unbelievably attractive. And I said, well, tell me the specifics. <laughs> and he then laid out to me the concept of a reverse accrual mortgage. And he said, what do you think? And I said, uh, if you are digging that hole, stop at six feet, because it's a grave. Uh, And you will end up owing far more than you owed when you walked in that house, than when each year that reverse accrual hits you. Uh, That told me something was going haywire. First quarter of 08, we entered a recession, there's no question. Yet, along came '916, 8 with Bear Stearns and Lehman Mm -hmm. going under. And we had a major crisis. Those were anomalies from which we recovered. Uh, By 10, we were in in a full recovery. That run lasted, you know, gosh, 10 years. And uh, another anomaly approached us in 2020 with COVID Uh, again, an anomaly, but yet we could see it was time to tighten up. Uh, I've watched over six economic cycles. I've watched uh, us go from 100% analog data a hand transcript to close the books of a hotel to absolute total automation to go from PMS to POS to digital benchmarking systems uh, to the thousands of points of source for revenue to our industry today. And now we're waiting once again. And I'd say there's a lot of pundits that are saying, we're going to have a recession. We're in a recession. Whatever. I caution myself in saying, actually, uh, economists are the wrong people to listen to. Uh, they've successfully predicted ten of the last five recessions, and that's a terrific track record. But the the uh, the fact is, we work in a business uh, to. Go back to an old comment that Steve Ballenbach, who is one of the geniuses at Hilton Hotels as CEO, he was asked, uh, how do you manage through the economic cycles? His answer was very simple. He said, this is a business that in the worst of times, if you're a smart manager, you will cash flow. And in the best of times, you will literally mint money. That's one of the things that really Makes hotels and resorts totally exciting. It causes me to look back and say, "So how did I get here?" Uh, I had a brief period of my life, over five years, that I was certain that the cards dealt me directed me toward a vocation as a Roman Catholic priest.
0: Oh, we share something
1: and comparable there. I. Uh, <clears throat> I believe in Providence. I think Providence came to me in a strange way. It's when I realized that the lovely nuns who were cooking for us at the seminary were looking terribly attractive. (laughs) I don't know if I struggled with that one, but, and where were you in seminary? I was in uh, the Archdiocese of Chicago, uh, the secular seminary at uh, St. Mary of the Lake and Quigley before that. uh, I decided this is a sign that I should look elsewhere for what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Yet I wanted to do something where uh, we were in some way being of service to others. And that started me on a long trail of working in restaurants. Finally applying to both Cornell and Michigan State from my seminary room, being accepted at both and going to my folks and saying, I can't go back. Uh, I'm. I've been accepted at both of these schools because they are the two best hotel schools in the country. Uh, which one can I go to? Uh, my dad hardly looked up. He just said. Undergraduate, you stay in the Midwest, you're from the Midwest, you go to Michigan State. <laughs> this was not in the age when people traveled around uh, checking schools with their kids. Right. <laughs> they put me on a Greyhound bus to go to Michigan <laughs> State for my first term. When I asked the bus driver, where's Michigan State University as I got off the bus? He said, son, you look in front of you and behind you and to your right and left, it's all Michigan State University. <laughs> I thought, Oh my God. So it's uh, I was literally out of the out of not even near the frying pan but I was in the fire. Uh, the period of time that I trained, I trained for a small Midwestern hotel company, one that uh, by chance they franchised the first 15 Holiday Inn hotels of America as they were called then on their grand sign. So these are the f- these are the first Holiday Inn franchises. That's right. Wow. It was uh, Albert Pick was a, an old company in Chicago that Mr. Pick's uh, father had been in the supply business during the Great Recession and from 29 to 34, 37, depending on which one you want to call it, uh, they ended up with a lot of hotels that owed them money. And all of a sudden they were in the hotel business. And there they were across the country, uh, a fairly well-known entity, but. He struck in with Kimmons Wilson, the mm-hmm. founder of Holiday Inns, and uh, the, uh, after a training period, I graduated, married, and first went to Washington, D.C., where I was ultimately assistant general manager and in charge of food and beverage, uh, the, and did the night audit uh, when the night auditor uh, wasn't around uh, for his day off. And what year is this? This would have been 1967. Okay. And uh, that that was a period of time where uh, my wife was a speechwriter for the Republican Whip of the Senate uh, and was actually writing speeches for George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, the former <laughs> governor of, of Michigan, who was running for president of the United States. He dropped out as many do. But uh, we saw Washington in a special way, uh, both as a tourist destination, as a business destination, as a lobbyist destination. Yet at the same time, we were exposed to the uh, the poor people's campaign, the encampment on, on the, the mall in Washington. Uh, the well, assass- it was a turbulent time. I mean, well, it was a very turbulent time. Unbelievably so. Uh, The assassination of Martin Luther King uh, became a major uh, major tragic event. I remember standing in front of the, it was two hotels in D.C., the Lee House and the Albert Pick Motor Inn, and watching a deuce and a half, uh, the transport for soldiers, followed by uh, a platoon of soldiers and then police cars with their shotguns cocked out the windows of the of the cars, and going to the top of the hotel, where there was a nice sun deck and pool, but looking over just two or three blocks, and all I saw from that point on was fire. Everything was on fire in D.C. Uh, it 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 was an eye opener, as to what was going on in the country at the time. Yet at the same time seen to the people who are coming to Washington, D.C. as a destination to see their capital or the capital that's embraced by the Americans. Uh, After a brief period, a couple of years there, uh, for some unknown reason, uh, the company decided they'd make me a general manager of a 110-room Holiday Inn Hotel of America little sign underneath the grand sign, an Albert Pick Motel (laughs) uh, that had uh, a restaurant, a lounge, uh, and 110 rooms. Uh, Our reservation pace was about 6% pre-reservations. Everything else came in off the road (laughs) on Route 41 Dixie B Highway in Terre Haute, Indiana, which was a, a, a great training ground because I had I had one department head. Uh who was not even called a controller. He was an auditor, and my office was behind the front desk, because when the front desk agents uh, needed to take a break, I relieved them and answered the phone on the cord switchboard as well. That's what a general manager did. And on weekends, we had an old Toro lawnmower that I mowed the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> That's. That was a roll up your sleeves job, and then out of nowhere, Rob, uh, I had an opportunity to join Hilton Hotels, which was the major player at the time, and of course still is. Uh, I was given a choice. They said, uh, "We we need a young general manager that's got a lot of initiative." I, I was, you know, jumping up and down, <laughs> saying, "I'm your man," uh, and. Uh, you can go to el paso texas or albuquerque new mexico i had never been west of the mississippi in my life i had no idea uh, other than i could find these places on a map and i said could you tell me something about these two places and they said well uh, uh el paso is a fairly new uh operation it's a hilton inn it has does gangbusters business it's making money hand over fist Uh, and, uh, we think you'll really like it. I said, well, tell me about Albuquerque. They said, well, that's, that's an old hotel. Uh, hasn't made money in about 15 years. And, uh, uh, it's in pretty rough shape. And I immediately said, I'll take Albuquerque. (laughs) It's only
0: upside. (laughs) that's, That's exactly,
1: exactly what went through my mind. I can't do anything worse than what they've just described to me. And uh, Albuquerque brought me in to a real full-service moderate high-rise hotel, about 12 stories. It's still there. It's now called the Hotel Andaluz in Albuquerque. But what I didn't know is Albuquerque was this second hotel, Conrad N. Hilton, the founder, built from the ground up as a hilton hotel Mm. and they said go after it you know we need we need a turnaround here uh i had a sales director who was a ex heavyweight wrestler named lucky boyd and i (laughs) got him (laughs) and he looked like his name sounds i said lucky we need to go uh and visit with all the people in town who make decisions for where they're going to send people to, to stay. Our room rates were about between three and a half and six dollars. <laughs> uh, this was 68 and uh, we knocked on every door and basically you know, I had read up, I found out Mr. Hilton came from not Texas, but he came from New Mexico. He was born just south of Albuquerque, squired in Albuquerque All his pals were in Albuquerque. I found out very quickly, he had a number of pals who would come in regularly. And once they had a couple of bourbons, uh, they'd be saying to someone, what's your name? I'm going to report you to Connie, (laughs) to Conrad Hilton, (laughs) Conrad Hilton. And uh, uh, so our our pitch to everyone we asked for business was you've got to bring your business back to Connie Hilton's hotel. And sure enough, they said, is it clean? You know, can we trust you? Said, yes, yes. Company, I think, gave us $20,000 to fix up a few things, which went a long way then. Uh, that's a lot of paint. And uh, they had a nice ballroom. Uh, when they built the hotel, it had, uh, they brought in a group. Mr. Hilton did this, brought a, a group of Indian, uh, Native American artisans who constructed the furniture in the hotel out of native walnut and carved all the ceilings. It was, you know, I thought it was a beautiful hotel and knew that it just needed a bit of love and a bit of a push. Well, sure enough, you know, people started booking their business. We were helped a little bit. Two hotels shut down. Uh, one was the last of the Fred Harvey trackside hotels, the Elvarado. And we took all that business. Within three months, now this is a classic case of unconscious competence. Within three months, we were making money, and I really had not the slightest idea why. <laughs> uh, I uh, I was mentored by an old-time general manager in my onboarding. They said, if you have any questions, call Jack Drown in Denver. He knows how to how to analyze a financial statement and. He would. I'd get him on the phone twice a week, and he taught me financial increment analysis, the relationship of revenue changes and expense changes, therefore flow through. All new words to me, but uh, things moved along quite well. A couple of months later, uh, as I sat in my office, a glassed-in area of the lobby, because that's the way. Way things were, I worked the lobby every night as a front manager, saying hello to folks. Phone rang. I answered it myself, and the voice at the other end of the line was right out of uh, the old series *Mad Men*. Oh yeah. Was Mr. Kleistner? This is uh, Olive Wakeman, uh, Conrad Hilton's secretary or assistant. Hold the line for Mr. Hilton. With that, (laughs) sat up straight said, uh, greeted him and he came on the line, uh, he was 83 at the time, sharp as a tack, uh, and uh, said, uh, Kleisner, Olive and I are coming to a the closing party for the Alvarado Hotel or uh, a, a, a ball and I'm going to do what he did for every hotel opening. He uh, he was quite a dancer. Uh, And uh, he had a number of well-known dance partners went out dancing at least three times a week. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And he would open every Hilton hotel with a a formal dance called the Varsoviana, a two-step. I said, Olive and I are going to do the Varsoviana to to close the Alvarado, and hopefully you picked up all that business. And I said, yes, sir, we sure did. He said, I'd like to spend a little time with you. I thought hmm, this is this is pretty amazing. Well, uh, I called my boss and said, uh, Mr. Conrad Hilton just called, and he and he and Olive Wakeman, his assistant, are coming to, for the weekend next weekend. And the response I got was, Look, he doesn't come or come to any hotel unless he has an entourage of a dozen people. Uh, you probably got this wrong, but just in case he shows up uh take down this list of everything we know he likes well conrad hilton did arrive and (laughs) we had uh, a press conference at the airport as he got off that included all the tv stations in town and this is where community engagement comes in as a hotel manager i got to know those people including having him welcomed by the governor of the state of New Mexico, David Cargo, and the lieutenant governor, E. Lee Daniels, and the chiefs of the Apache Nation and the Pueblo Nation, uh, to make him feel welcome home. Uh, one of the, uh, the, the questions uh, he received at his press conference was, Mr. Hilton, what was it, what was it like to be married to Zsa Zsa Gabor? And he said, all I can tell you about Jaja is that even after we divorced, uh, <clears throat> she felt great regret because uh, she had my name on all her towels. And he added, of course, she had stolen them all from the hotels. <laughs> and uh, I was instructed by my boss that, you know, if he shows up, If he so much as drops a piece of paper, you catch it before it hits the ground. And I was there. He was 6'3", walked like he had a ruler instead of a spine, was, as I said, sharp as a tack, Uh, went went to mass every morning. I walked with him. Was a profoundly religious person uh, and patriotic person as well. The next day, Olive called and said, Mr. Hilton wants you to come up to his suite. And I walked in and here laid out on on the desk was the financial statement. You know, this was mimeographed financial statements of the Albuquerque Hilton. And he said, son, this hotel has not made money in 15 years. Just how did you do this? and in a um, in a, a reach for honesty i said mr hilton I, I have to be honest with you i'm not exactly sure but we simply went to all the people in town and let them know that this is connie hilton's hotel and i i added hope you don't mind i called you connie he, looked, he said that's my name and I said, the business came back uh, because people know you. Uh, and he said, well, uh, you keep, keep it up. Uh, I think you're going to go places. Uh, within six months, this is after hosting the American Congress of, of, of uh, American Indian Convention, having Sparrow T. Agnew, the Vice President of the United States, show up to speak to them, Teddy Kennedy, made his first speech, public speech after the Chappaquiddick uh, bridge debacle he got himself in. Uh, and the, uh, the Secretary of the Interior, Walter Hickel, who's a hotelier. He owned a whole bunch of hotels up in Alaska. He was former governor of Alaska, all came in. And uh, as opposed to these nice little hotels that I had associated myself with, theretofore, I thought, Wow, the Vice President of the United States, United States Senator, Secretary of the Interior. This could be very cool. And uh, next thing I knew, I was on my way to Houston, Texas, to the Shamrock Hilton uh, in Houston, which at that time, thousand room hotel, it's resident manager, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the hotel had a swimming pool that measured 167 feet by 125 feet. I've seen kind of pictures of it because it was an iconic. We did, we would do cocktail parties for conventions and so on, uh, where we had a, a synchronized diving team, a synchronized swimming team, and we could put a boat and two skiers in that pool. During, <laughs> during, during <the laughs> So you'd have a boat. Had a boat. And... Uh, and we had, this is before liquor by the drink in, in the state of Texas. Oh, what did hotels do? We all had private clubs. Well, the Shamrock had four private clubs. The leading one of which was uh, started by uh, the, uh, the the person who, uh, who opened the Shamrock in 1948 on St. Patrick's Day, uh, who is the uh was the the character on whom the movie giant rock hudson Mm -hmm. elizabeth taylor was based and was the international club of houston we had two 13-piece orchestras that rotated uh we had every two weeks we had name entertainment and florence henderson frank sinatra jr uh dizzy gillespie You name it, uh, most of which I didn't have much of a feel for. But all of a sudden I was thrust into the entertainment business. And my wife and I would go whenever we had an opening to the International Club. Beautiful restaurant. The second week after I had to do that, I went to the executive chef of the hotel. We had been there years and years and walked in in the morning. He said, uh, greeted me, he said, boss, what's, I still was getting used to someone calling me boss. Uh, boss, what's up? And I said, "Close the door, and I said, chef, I'm running the biggest bluff of my life. And I need your help. Uh, he said, what are you talking about? And I said, I, I go in the restaurant. I, I took one wine course at Michigan State, senior, that was mostly to drink a lot of wine. <laughs> uh, I don't know what wine to order. I don't know what food to order. Some of the items on the menu, it still had Gary Doan's service. Uh, I don't even know where they come from. I was raised by, uh, with my siblings, by an, an, an Irish Catholic mother who thought that uh, Irish bland food was what everyone ate Uh, and he looked at me and said, we will have lunch every day and I'll prepare something uh, and we will talk about food. Within a year, uh, I had a handle on walking into any restaurant uh, and understanding the way the list ran and uh what to order and how it was going to come out and how to specify it uh what 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 caused that and that's something i've recommended to all young hotel people is know what you know and of greater importance know what you don't know and fill in those blanks yeah.
0: well you've got and i know you can tell probably f- 15 times the amount of stories on every hotel because that you have. So the ones that I wanna at least fast forward to a little bit is your time in Hawaii. Sure. So you were at a couple of properties in Hawaii, were you not? The Kona Hilton and the Hilton Hawaiian Village. uh, And those are not small hotels. No,
1: this is, Kona was 450 rooms. Hilton Hawaiian Village was 2,300 rooms plus two apartment buildings, plus 200 shops, Convention center for 2,600 people and a 2,000 car garage.
0: All right, you have an Elvis story. Ah, yes, without question. You have to tell the Elvis story.
1: The uh, the last thing uh, that a, a hotel operator needs when his or her hotel is running 96 percent revenue occupancy is a call from the. Uh, brother general manager of the Las Vegas Hilton, where Elvis Presley was the king, the star. And it, it, where every time John Fitzgerald called me, I knew I was going to have to scramble because it, he was calling, I knew, to say, Elvis wants to come to Hawaii. And it wasn't just Elvis, it was you needed the Duke Kahanamoku suite, 200 rooms in the Rainbow Tower, and that mean meant we had a cancel and move around tour groups (laughs) bend over backwards to make it happen yet i remember one time i i tried to tell him no we're just we are too backed up his response was very simple it's a good guy john fitzgerald uh was uh do you want to say yes to me or do you want to say yes to baron hilton because that's your next call and i said you're going to need to have mr hilton call me and instead of getting a call, Baron Hilton was in Tokyo at the time, I got a telegram and the telegram was short and to the point. Kleisner, Honolulu, make sure you take Elvis and whatever he needs. Give him Hilton. <laughs> that was it. I had my, my marching orders. Well, Elvis came in with an entourage and he had a personal manager, Joe Esposito. Of course, he had his business manager. Everyone knows from the Elvis movie, uh, Tom Parker, Colonel Parker, who was not even a colonel, he was a a Kentucky colonel, one of those honorary things they, Mm. they give the, the uh, governor of Kentucky gives you, Uh, but man, he played it up. Uh, They came in a couple of times but the time that was most memorable was they came in when elvis was planning to do an 82 country broadcast live and direct from the honolulu international center in honolulu hawaii and classic of 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 colonel parker first elvis came in got him in the duke kanamoku suite he was happy and then two days later they sent elvis out to the airport brought him in, in a helicopter. We had a heliport in front of the hotel and Parker hired about 400 young ladies to be there screaming and clapping as, as he landed and went to a press conference immediately that we set up where he announced that all proceeds of ticket proceeds from those who attended the live broadcast would go to the kui Lee kui Lee was the author of a tune we all know, mm-hmm. pearly shells. Who died of cancer, cancer of the throat? Sadly, uh, the Cooley Cancer Fund. Now, what Colonel Parker didn't tell anyone is it was against the law to charge anyone for tickets to a live television broadcast. That was classic, <laughs> Colonel Parker. It uh, to be a, engaged in a community as a hotelman and nimble when requests come from guests, particularly VIPs, came really out in spades. It was the call uh, from Joe Esposito saying, Elvis is entertaining some people and we need you to close your two best jewelry stores. They weren't ours, they were leases uh, because Elvis wants to pick out some jewelry. I went to the owners uh, of each, it was a father-son group and they closed down. Elvis came in, bought a number of baubles, uh, as the case was. And all was fine. Uh, Four days later, Esposito called me again and said, Elvis has two young women who have visited him. And he wants to give them each a mink coat. It's Saturday night. It's Honolulu, Hawaii. (laughs) They want a mink coat in May. (laughs) And I was able, again, community engagement, what good hoteliers do uh, to find the whereabouts of the president of Liberty House, the local department store, who was at dinner at the uh, at the uh, wildlife country club, get him out of his dinner and on my guarantee that that we would make sure everything was paid for. He called security at Liberty House on Kalakaua Avenue and they let me in. And I found the only two mink coats that existed in the state of Hawaii (laughs) at the time. Uh, And there was constant, you know, requests like this. Elvis wants to rehearse, so close down the Hilton Dome and set up all the sound systems for him. And his entire entourage all wore, outside their shirt, a gold chain with a medallion on it that had a lightning bolt and the initials tcb written on it well tcb stand stood for taking care of business and the lightning bolt was in a flash it was a it was a a colonel parkerism not something elvis developed but they all wore them and i remember saying as these as these <laughs> these requests came in saying you know you guys come to me with the craziest uh, most nonsensical requests, we would get them all done. The least you could do for me is give me one of those stupid TCB medallions that you all wear. And the answer was, oh, no, 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 this is, that's just for the, you know, the, the inner circle. Well, it came time for him to leave after the uh, 82 country broadcast. By the way, the broadcast occurred at two in the morning. It's going to 82 countries from the Honolulu time zone. and. Colonel Parker was right there on, uh, in the what we would call today the GA uh, level of uh, the International Center. And what was he doing? He was hawking autographed pictures of Elvis for the Cooley Cancer Fund,
0: <laughs> God bless him.
1: <laughs> but it uh, came time to go and uh, I'm in my office, I'm doing the monthly credit meeting of the hotel. Making You know, collectible sales are important. And uh, it was Joe Esposito. He said, come up to the suite. Elvis wants to say goodbye. And my answer was, Joe, say goodbye for me. Uh, I'm, I've got a meeting going. And he said, no, that's, that's not the answer that's going to work for us. You get up here to the Duke Kahanamoku suite right now. And I said, OK. And I said, yeah, you hold the phone. Uh, went upstairs. Knocked on the door, Joe came out, said, come on in. And uh, there's Elvis, uh, no pancake makeup. And he, he generally wore it when he went any, anywhere on the ground. Was in his one of his slim stages and an actually soft spoken, pleasant fellow. Uh, almost made you sad for him. Uh, and they said, <laughs> remember Esposito saying, Elvis, you know, Fred. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks for all everything you've done for us. Uh, and uh, they handed him a walnut box, and he opened it up and took out this TCB thing, put it, put it around my neck, shook my hand, and said, now you're one of my guys.
0: Oh, tell me you still have
1: that. I do. Do you really? Uh, my two sons... Uh every time I uh I take a extended international flight, they'll say, Don't take the T C B medallion with you, because if the flight goes down, <laughs> neither one of us will be able to get it. They <laughs> <laughs> uh still have it, uh, still occasionally will wear it. Uh I gave a speech to the Southern Innkeepers Association in Memphis and uh they made a big deal about the fact I, I had the T C B med- medallion. Enough so that the folks at the Peabody Hotel made me Duck Master for the day, where I led the ducks from their, <laughs> Sorry, from their pond right. in the lobby up to their their uh, their uh, their headquarters on the roof of the hotel.
0: Yeah, that's so funny. Well, I do have a question that I uh, I said unfortunately I wish we had a forty part uh, podcast series because I would have you on every day. We just go through all of your stories. Uh, a question that I do ask everybody is. Uh, You've been to a lot. You've been probably—I'm just going to go on a limb and say—you've probably been to more hotels than any guests have ever had, and probably been to more hotels than just about anybody in America. I'm sure there's somebody that can compete with you, but not many. So, uh, you've got one place to go, right? I'm not saying that you're at the end of your life, but you're getting—you're tw- getting up there. So, you got one more trip you're going to take anywhere in the world. Could be a place you've been, not been. What hotel you're going to, and
1: why? Uh, I can tell you that if my wife Jana was sitting here, she would say exactly the same thing. Uh, There is in Kyoto, Japan, a 650-year-old Japanese ryokan. Uh, The name of it is Tawaraya, Uh, that's the way we would pronounce it, T-A-W-A-R-A-Y-A, has about 26 units. each unit has a western sitting area and all the rest is tatami tatami sitting area that becomes your sleeping area in a classic Japanese furo bath, wooden bath, where you you sink in neck high into a, an oaken tub where there's a little soji screen you open and you look into a miniature garden where a bamboo piece is over is dripping water into a pool. Uh, you open the uh, the Soji screen in the in the western sitting area, and you're looking right at Mount Fuji. And uh, at least on a clear day, uh, I, I think it, it is as close to a religious experience in a hotel that I've ever had. Mm. I would uh, do these twenty cities in fourteen days budget review trips with the CFO and, uh, occasionally Jonna would come with me, but I'd always break those trips up with a two day stay at Tellaraya where it kind of recharge the battery. I had read somewhere that John Lennon and Yoko Ono had checked in there and never came out of their room for seven days straight. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I suggested to Jana that we try and break that record. Uh, she she demurred. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, it is one of the spectacular places on Earth uh, that uh, still exists. They say it's 650 years old, but I think it's burned down about 10 times at least. Uh, but uh, if I felt I was becoming agile in the Japanese language, it was when. We were on the bullet train heading to Kyoto and my wife had said, is there any way we could get a bottle of red wine sent to our room? And I felt like I was someone who had uh, had uh, performed a miracle when we arrived and you take your shoes off before you go in. You sit down and register in the sitting area of your accommodation and there was a bottle of French Bordeaux <laughs> waiting for us. My wife thought I was a genius too. Uh, I was shocked. But uh, it, it's one of the great hotels of the world. I can remember when the CFO and I were traveling through one of those crazy, you know... you know.
0: And which company were you with at the time? This
1: was Weston. And we'd, we'd start in Seattle. We'd go through Asia. That was the first 14 days. Then we'd go through the Middle East and Europe. It was the next 14. And the next... Seven days was across U.S. to review all the budgets and push everyone, just, just, just the way you all do. Uh, trouble was, I finally figured out that I needed to keep better track of my itinerary and track of my time. Uh, CFO and I got on, uh, got on the plane in Manila, having done a review of the Western Philippine Plaza in, in Manila on our way to Kuala Lumpur. Where we had a hotel under construction but it was a pre-opening budget we needed to look at and the sign at the airport said this is the flight on air malaysia to uh to kuala lumpur well plane took off it landed and we got up we got off the plane and uh started walking through the terminal and i looked at uh uh Rich Mahoney our CFO and said Rich this doesn't look like Kuala Lumpur to me and and he said yeah it looks uh, it looks different than maybe they changed things I went into a souvenir shop and I said this is Kuala Lumpur right and the woman looked at me and said no this is Kota Kitabalu which is part of the Malaysian uh, country but it's on the island of Borneo. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like when you make a mistake like that, you can say, OK, in an hour, there'll be another flight from Cota Quintabaloo to KL. Uh, we had to spend the night. We had to get on, you know, get on the phone. We didn't have didn't have any handhelds at that point. And uh, let everyone know we're, we're going to have to start the meeting a day late. <clears throat> it, we learned a hard lesson there. It's a little bit harder
0: to pull that off today, landing in a uh, separate city from your, from your where you're planning
1: to do it. Oh, it's uh, it, it, the eye openers of cultural pluralism it came out so clearly, particularly as we took over and, and opened and supervised all these hotels in Asia and in the Middle East and Europe, too. But in Asia, uh, we opened a hotel in Surabaya, Indonesia, and the owner of the hotel... Uh, his only questions whenever I saw him was please assure me this will be the best hotel in Surabaya. And I looked around and I said, well, not much in Surabaya right now. (laughs) Yeah, we can, we're good there. Well, we were in having an owner's meeting after they had opened and he's, this guy was constantly on his, on his, uh, cell phone. And, uh, this would have been 1997. And, uh, uh, I nudged the CFO and this guy was going through his agenda and being attentive to the owner. Uh, I said, to, uh, Chairman Rogerman, uh, we need to leave. Uh, there's only one flight to Singapore. We need to be in Singapore tomorrow. And that's it. And his answer was, you will not leave until we finish this meeting. And, uh, and I could tell by his words, and I leaned over to the, to the CFO and said, rich, we'll figure this out later, but we're staying. And he went on for another 45 minutes. This is the weather, the traffic in Surabaya was like you'd imagine in many emerging cities, mm-hmm. uh, traffic signals were just a suggestion. And no one wore helmets on their motor scooters and quite often had one child in their arm and one hanging on the back. It was the most unsafe place to try and get <laughs> to an airport. And he finishes the meeting and he said, fine, my car is waiting. You'll now go to the airport. And I said, oh, all, all due respect, sir, uh, we, uh, w- we've, we've missed this flight. And he looked at me, he said, you'll go to the airport. Mind you, he'd been on the phone off and on. I never knew why. And car's waiting. He's got two motorcycle cops who are escorting us to the airport. We get to the airport. I'm thinking, this is such an exercise in futility. There's no hotels at the airport. And a a chain link gate opens that I didn't even know existed. No passport control. And we pull onto the tarmac. And like... And like an apparition, (laughs) there is a wide-body Singapore Airlines 747 sitting there on the tarmac with the stairs going up. And I thought, wow. I said to the CFO, when we get on this plane, do not look at anyone. (laughs) That plane had been sitting on the tarmac for at least... Two hours. Oh my gosh! We got on the plane. Even as, as delightful as the as the cabin staff in Singapore Airlines are, and they're wonderful, no one liked us. So <laughs> <laughs> these are the guys who held us on the ground. I uh, it dawned on me, the owner of the hotel didn't know anyone at Singapore Airlines. He knew the person at the airport. Yes, yeah, so he probably had the air uh, oh they, the said, air traffic controllers do, tell do them not, not let that plane leave. That is period. <laughs>
0: Well, hopefully, <laughs> I've, you've not told me that one before. That's incredible. So uh, I wish we could sit here and do this for another few hours, but unfortunately, we're at the end of this time. But um, hopefully, our our listeners and and the people that watch this podcast get a sense for um, obviously the background that that you have, and the experience that you had, and 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 frankly, what I, like I said. I very much treasure our friendship and the amount of kind of wisdom that uh, that you have, but that also you've passed down. It's very much appreciated because there's a lot of people that have worked for you, that appreciate you, that have learned a lot. And um, I know the feeling. I mean, I think we all do those who, who eventually try to run companies and, and take responsibility where at the beginning you feel, as you said, some of your earlier roles, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm just making this up as I go. know and looking to others to teach you Mm -hmm. how to how to do this and what ought do i what ought to be doing and um so just know that you've you've impacted a lot of people and and um -hmm. we're we're very much appreciative of all the all the work you've put in this industry for a very long time
1: i'll leave you with one quick vignette which i've told you before but i'd share this with your your viewers Uh, i was summoned back to the hilton wine village a few years after i left uh, to testify in a in a court case and uh i stayed of course at the wine village and i was walking across the grounds and i ran into one of the old-time housekeepers on the property and with what i assumed was was uh perfunctory flattery she said oh mr k it's so good to see you again uh, we really miss you you were one of the best and i thought hmm, don't get carried away fred <laughs> ask her I said, why do you, why do you say that? What, what difference did I make? And she looked at me like I had two heads and said, well, Mr. K., when you were here, we all worked 50 weeks and had our two weeks vacation. Uh, the hotel was always busy. Uh, it dawned on me, the people who support us in hotels rate us on their job stability that we create through the way we manage. I never, ever forgot that. That's great. It's been great being with you, Rob. Fred, I appreciate it.
0: And yeah. uh, so thanks to all of you all for joining us for the Hotels 101 podcast. I hope you've enjoyed some of the Fred Kleiser stories. He uh, he has a lot more of these. So if you ever run into him at a, at a conference or at the bar or wherever, please pull him aside because I promise you he's got literally hundreds of these things. And uh, so I'm, I'm just thrilled that he was able to share with some of those today. So thanks for coming to Hotels One, And we will see you all next episode. Thanks for coming.